Every year, CCBR's team of staff, interns, and volunteers engage thousands of post-abortive mothers and fathers in our conversations about abortion. And today's episode is dedicated to giving you the tools that you need to compassionately and effectively engage this huge demographic of people. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Pro-Life Guys podcast. I'm excited for this episode. I'm excited about the guest that we have on this episode and the work that she is doing to uh, really seek healing and 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 allow post-abortive men and women to find healing and, and lead them on that journey. Before we get into that, uh, we have a few things that I'll introduce our guest today. My name is Peter. I'm the host of the program. And with me again is my good friend, my wonderful co-host, Cam. It's so good to see you. As always, Peter, it's good to be in the booth with you. Um, and likewise, I'm fired up about this episode and I'm fired up about a few upcoming events that we have coming. I know that we've mentioned it a few times already, um, but we have a couple of events coming up, one of which is a three-week um, kind of apologetics discussion group that I'm going to be leading end of May, early June sort of thing. Um, this is an opportunity where I will be giving short presentations at the beginning of each kind of episode, as it were, like a 20, 25 minute thing. And then an opportunity for you to bring up any questions that you're encountering, whether it's um, conversations online, in person with friends, family, whomever it may be, stuff that you're seeing, stuff that you're hearing. Um, a lot of this that I, I want to be offering is a lot of conversational dynamic stuff. How do you manage a conversation with different kinds of people to bring about the best possible results, but also some topical stuff as well. And so you can find that on our website, ProLifeGuys.com. Check out the courses and you can register for that. It's 25 bucks to be a part of. All of that money um, goes towards building up the program, but even more so building up the outreach that we are doing across Canada. And so um, we're very appreciative if you tune in for that. And then the second thing is our quarterly roundtable that we've been mentioning coming up in a couple weeks here. Become a Patreon supporter to get an invite and to get in on this super exclusive kind of inside look at the history of Canada's pro-life movement, where we've come from and where we are going, learning about our past so that we can better shape our future. I think it's been really cool to talk to a couple of legends in Canada's pro-life movement. And so... Um, Sign up, patreon.com slash guys. But um, that's not what we're here for. That's coming up in a few weeks. Peter, what are we here for today? Absolutely. Our conversation today is with Lisa Rowe. She is the CEO of Support After Abortion. She has spent the last two decades equipping and empowering those who have lived through the most tragic of circumstances and is passionate about healing the hurt of abortion for the sake of individuals today and for the sake of future generations. Their vision, uh, so, uh, her vision with support after abortion is to end the demand for abortion by healing those impacted. Support after abortion is a catalyst to inspire compassion among people, promote collaboration with leaders and build capacity for programming. This is a fantastic conversation. You can learn more as well uh, at their website, which I don't have on the top of my head at this moment, supportafterabortion.com, I think it is, but also on their podcast. Lisa runs a podcast, Support After Abortion, where you can learn more from that as well. But until then, this is our conversation with Lisa Rowe. Lisa, thank you so much for taking the time and joining us in the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be here. So to kick things off, I wonder if you could share with us a little bit about who you are, 
um, just for our listeners to give a bit of an understanding and your journey to, I guess, pro-life ministry, pro-life movement, and uh, the work you do, perhaps maybe give an introduction with uh, to support after abortion. Absolutely. So uh, as you said, my name is Lisa. My last name is Roe, Lisa Roe. I am first a wife and we have a blended family. So I am mom and stepmom to five children, ranging from six years old to 22 years old. Um, And our life is busy with baseball and soccer and theater and all that good stuff. Uh, my, My professional experience, I am a licensed clinical social worker. I have a private practice. And I also am the CEO of the organization you just named, Support After Abortion. A little bit about my passion for this work is that, you know, I came from a lot of the vulnerabilities that we see the women and men that have experienced abortion. I've come from that. I've experienced divorce and alcoholism and codependency and generational cycles of behavior that I accepted as normal until I started to see them in my own adult life. And uh, I've been able to walk alongside a lot of people who've experienced trauma and they've taught me a lot about their journey. My own personal journey has taught me a lot. And uh, it's my mission to help people understand that abortion is one of the many symptoms that the human heart experiences when it's broken. And unfortunately, our culture and our religion has taught us that we take a side when we talk about abortion instead of investigating and helping that person. And so I hope that our conversation today really explores that and helps your listeners better understand how do we talk about this topic? How do we help people? And why aren't there more people reaching out for help right now? Absolutely. I'm so glad that you mentioned that. And that's one of the reasons why I was so interested in having you join the program, because I think that you have such a beautiful mission where this isn't about polarizing stuff. A lot, Peter, of what you and I try to work on is how do we kind of forge a human connection with the person that we're talking to, not as a quote-unquote pro-lifer and a quote-unquote pro-abortion advocate or pro-choice or whatever we want to call them, but as human beings who, like you said, have gone through all sorts of different experiences that have shaped us um, for better or for worse sort of thing. And I'm curious about the development of support after abortion. You mentioned um, just before we hit the record button that this is a relatively new um, organization. And as you mentioned, a background in social work, I have a profound amount of um, respect for people with that background. My wife was a high school teacher and worked hand in hand with several social workers who were helping a number of different kids and families at the school and profound amount of appreciation for the, the ministry as a whole. Where did support after abortion, the the development of this, there's, there's, like you said, lots of different pro-life initiatives across America, around the world. And to find this niche of trying to end the demand by healing the previous hurt, the, the, the generational trauma, the passing on from, from parent to child, from parent to child, on and on. Where did that vision come from? And what are you seeing already? You, you launched formally as an independent organization in 2020. I'm sure mm-hmm. that's a bit of a wild time to, to launch an organization in the midst of a, a global pandemic. Um, yeah. What has it been like? What, where was the, the genesis of that vision? And how has that manifest already in the last couple of years here? 
Yeah, you know, we never saw it becoming what it is today, an international organization that's having this global impact. Never did we see this. So the problem that we were trying to answer was why in Southwest Florida were there not more people reaching out for support? So we looked at the pregnancy center movement, the Catholic uh, support services in our area, and just to ask that question, why? Why are only 10 people a year reaching out for support when we know there's millions who've been impacted? And we knew that it had to have something to do with a product problem or a marketing problem. And we have the genius of Janine Marone, our board president and founder, and she comes from MBNA, strategic marketing, asking all these questions that we hadn't been challenged with in the abortion healing movement. And so we sought out to answer that question, again, just to maybe help serve our Southwest Florida community better. And what we learned as a result of that is that actually there's a lot of programs out there doing really great work, but 95% of them look similar. They are very uh, biblically based, very scripturally sound. Um, you have to meet in person. And most of the time it's run by a 60 year old white woman on a Thursday morning. And what do we know about abortion? It's it's commonly happening between an 18 to 30 year old you know, age group. And that's not something that a 25 year old could attend. Not, not only might they not have a relationship with God and be ready for that sort of intensive scriptural healing program, but a Thursday morning, they have their other living children, they're working two jobs. There's a lot of things that got into the way. And so as we began to see the commonalities between the healing programs, then we started to say, okay, so we know there's healing programs, but we know that this is an issue. Well, then we started to go out and start to ask people through consumer research. So we've now conducted four consumer research projects. And so what I like to always describe, because I didn't know this initially, is that clinical research is very different than consumer research. Clinical research is I take a pretest and a post-test. This is how effective this group was. This is how effective the medication was. But consumer research is actually going out to men and women who've experienced abortion and saying, why aren't you reaching out for help? What if there was help? And so we learned a lot from this research. It is a national research uh, study, four of them, that represent the census data in the United States. And what we learned from that data was that 90% of people hurting after abortion did not know where to go for help. 85% said, I want to remain anonymous initially. And 85% said, I want a non-faith forward approach. Well, you just heard me describe what our industry was providing, and it was like the exact exact opposite. And again, I want your viewers to know that they're doing great work. It just wasn't providing what the consumer was needing. And so we went out trying to find out, like, is there anybody doing this? Is there? And what we learned was no. And so what we started to, to gravitate to is um, helping people understand this, sharing best practices. Abby Johnson uh, reached out to us and said, hey, we're producing this film, and we need Need somebody who is willing to take anyone and everyone who's impacted, not just a Christian approach, and meet them where they are. Would you be the resource after our film? And we said, oh my gosh, yes. Well, that just was the launch of this international, you know, it, it just change for us. And our board of directors at the local pregnancy center that we were answering this little question, what we thought said, you guys are accepting way more clients than we are locally. And um, you're not serving the local community in the way you once thought. Are you ready to start your own organization? And our board president said, 
Yes, absolutely. We never saw this coming. And so here we are today still answering that question. How do we serve more people? We know there's 22 million people based on our research that are looking for help today that that aren't they don't know where to go. And so we're helping to build an infrastructure of these 200 programs, the pregnancy center movement, the pro-life movement to say, hey, if abortion healing isn't on the top of your list of things to do, it needs to be on the top of your list of things to do because and this all ends here, 50% of the abortions happening are repeat abortions. Just think about that. This is such an innovative way. Nobody's thought about this. But if we could get into the heart and mind of a man and woman before they go back into the clinic, what happens? They're not likely going to repeat that same behavior. They're going to have the resources, they're going to have the community, and they're going to have the healing in their heart. And then what happens? Well, then we start to have generational change. Grandma then gets the healing that she needs. Mom gets the healing. Daughter gets the healing. And that next generation doesn't even consider abortion as an option because it's become unthinkable. So uh, so that's what we're trying to help the world understand. That is fantastic. I, mean, I, I, I was scouring your website, but this is a, I mean, a wonderful synopsis, something that I, I am very, very excited about. Um, and very thankful that you're doing. If I could, if I could transition just a little to, okay, what does this actually look like? Mm-hmm. Um, so here you are. Um, there are so many women uh, either getting their second or third abortion, um, or just needing the the post abortion counseling um, mm-hmm. and and resources and connections and relationships. Um, where do we start? And I'm thinking as well about. Uh, I mean. We work for a, a pro-life ministry. We do on-the-street conversations where we meet countless uh, women who uh, have interacted with abortion in some way, whether it's, you know, they've had an abortion in the past or their mother did or their friend or something like that. And we know a lot of our listeners do as well. And so where do we where do we begin a conversation? What are the what's the sort of frame of mind we ought to have as we begin to interact with people who have had abortions in the past? It's a great question. And and you kind of already answered it. It starts with the conversation, right? There's so many people that don't even realize they're carrying stereotypes because culture has nourished us or programmed us to take a side. You hear the word abortion and you instantly go, I'm pro-life, I'm pro-choice, I'm for it, I'm against it. It's a sin, it's a choice. Like we don't know that that is innately built into our DNA because that's what we're born into. And so because that's the way the culture has kind of formed the conversation, we have to start a new conversation. We, it's our job to start understanding our own stereotypes and then becoming that soft place to land. I'm going to talk about abortion, but I'm going to talk about abortion with compassion. I'm going to remember that at a dinner table with four people, at least one of those people will have experienced abortion. And so it's not about calling it murder at the dinner table. It's not about talking politics at the dinner table. It's about having a conversation that says there's a lot of people hurting after abortion. And I I, I didn't realize that this many people were hurting and it could be some Somebody in our close network that um, I, I want to be somewhere safe that they can they can have that conversation. So we always say start with stereotypes, start with an understanding about how culture has cultivated your own messaging, how your family has cultivated a message, um, and then what we do is we have the proper language. Once somebody sees us as safe to disclose, we then are able to say, "I am so sorry for your loss." 
you are not alone. And then sitting with that, because it's likely the first time they've ever told anybody, right? And then being able to not be judgmental like they automatically assumed that you would be. You've acknowledged that they had a loss, which is like tremendous for somebody who's kept this a secret or thought you were going to judge them. And then once they've processed that, you might say to them, would you like to share your experience with me? That takes it to a whole nother level because now you're interested. You want to take my most egregious sin and you actually care to know about it. And then after they've shared it with you, if they feel comfortable, you then can refer them for support. And then they don't, they're not left with nothing. We don't want to get into their boat and go, oh, I'm so sorry. You know, that's not, we don't want to shame them and, and blame them. But, but just like divorce, sexual abuse, homelessness, poverty, name all of the things that our world is contending with, we enter in with a compassionate approach. And that's what we're encouraging people to do with abortion. Absolutely. And I, I love that. And I'd love to to get your take on that kind of, not not victim per se, but, but the person that you're talking to, how to help them lead the interaction. Because I feel like at times, pro-lifers have this, this giant heart and they just want to like throw solutions at a perceived problem of, oh my goodness, you've had an abortion. I, I think you should do this and this and this and this. And I'm sure this probably happened to you. From from your perspective, where is the value in having that that kind of active listening and an invitation of help me understand where where you want to go with this? Help me understand where you're at. Help me understand where you've been. Share what you think is important, and let's let's frame this around you and not around me and my ministry fixing all of your problems. I I, I don't know if that's a symptom that that you run into when you're speaking at churches or other events and whatnot. But where are you at on that? How much should pro-lifers be offering versus how much should they be receiving, I suppose, before they start trying to solve the problems, I guess? That's so good. And doesn't that speak to an agenda? We have to really be clear about what are we doing? Do we have an agenda when we're entering into these conversations? Because if we do, we're not meeting people where they are. You know, anytime that, you know, when you're getting sold a car, like, you know, that that salesman has an agenda and it instantly makes you feel like on guard. And so we have to be very conscientious of that as we enter into conversations that if you have an agenda, you are going to not build rapport. We need to be ready to follow that person's lead, because if the if the world is the opposite of this, right, we have to be the exact opposite of that right there. They've gotten they've swallowed all the murder messaging. They swallowed all the choice messaging. They've swallowed this for some of them decades. And so we have to be the complete opposite of that and just say, I'm willing to sit with you through this. Nobody else has ever been non-judgmental. They don't have, they've, they've never showed up without an agenda. They've never told me that I'm a murder, you know, not a murderer. I mean, there's just so much that we have to be the opposite of if we're willing to really sit down. The reality is, as a pro-lifer, you, I think it's we need to accept they've already had the abortion, right? And they've already made it. It, it. There's nothing more that we can do to save that baby. So now it's about the woman in front of us and we can save generations. We can save the rest of her life. We can save the other living children that she has from all the, you know, backlash of that wound. And, uh, and so I would start with where's your heart and do you have an agenda? Mm -hmm. 
And and one quick thing, Peter, I know that you'd love to dive into the father side of this as well and how abortion impacts men, because I know that's a, a, a theme that you've been doing on your podcast, Lisa. Just mm-hmm. before we dive into that, I, I'm curious about, you mentioned the idea of, of maybe not practically sitting down at dinner and bringing this up at a dinner table, but I, I wonder if you could just a quick comment on knowing how far to push the conversation as well. Because I feel like at times there's this idea that if if the healing doesn't happen now, maybe it's never going to happen, particularly Mm. people that we have some degree of rapport with, maybe a neighbor, a friend, a family member, somebody in our community. How do you gauge the, the question of how far do I take this conversation, um, trusting that that maybe there's a, a part two of the conversation maybe you're putting a pebble in the shoe maybe you're getting them thinking that's going to manifest either with yourself or somebody else down the road how do you find that balance in conversation that's a great question i think that that starts with relationship you know i think that if we have our own stereotypes in check if we know that we're coming pure without an agenda it really is about the person in front of us and to know that their heart is no different than our heart. It beats the same. We just have different experiences. And how would you have liked to have been met with the, the things that have hurt your heart? Um, if we can look at that person like us, understand that woundedness is woundedness. How do you like to be met in your woundedness? Right. We think about wounds like actual wounds, cuts. You know, how do we heal those gently? You don't just go throwing tons of alcohol on it. You take the little alcohol swab and little by little, you know, with our children, little by little, we help them. And then it's the ointment, nice and gentle. And then it's the Band-Aid. And even when we rip off the Band-Aid to replace it, it's gentle, you know. And so um, everybody's different. And so everybody's going to be somewhere different. But if we can acknowledge that this person in front of us is no different, we are more alike than we are different. And we can look to our own selves and our own healing journey and match what we need. Oftentimes, that is exactly what the person, you know, across the table from us needs as well. I love when I think about this, Lisa, of the posture that you're presenting, because I mean, if my sister or my friend came up to me and and said something tragic that happened in her life there's there's sort of this intuitive specific way that i'm going to respond and it's like you're describing and yet so often it seems like when you know the person out there um that we meet on the streets or wherever it might be um says something sometimes we have a different response it's like you know sort of the anyway but just having that posture of you know really building that relationship with them really um seeking to understand I wonder, um, and I know a lot of this can be said about fathers as well, but the sort of general understanding and, and perception um, that I, I know it exists certainly in the culture, but I know it also exists in the churches, is that abortion doesn't affect fathers quite like it affects mothers. And yeah, we've had a father on the podcast who uh, lamented uh, the abortion that his girlfriend got. And we've met men who, um, yeah, either regretted taking their girlfriend or their spouse to go get an abortion or ha- had no say in the matter whatsoever. And it was deeply grieving to them. I wonder if you have anything specific regarding approaching men or having conversations with men, what that looks like, um, especially when they've spent so much time hearing that their voice doesn't matter in this debate and their kid, I mean, that was up to the mother and so they should have no say even now. 
Yeah, let's unpack this. I am so grateful for this question because it's multi-layered. And uh, so I'd start with, I believe that our culture has villainized men and they have often blamed men for the abortion experience. I, when I was the pregnancy center executive director, found that to be the messaging, right? We didn't see the men come in. The girls would come in. They don't know where their boyfriend is. He didn't want to bring them. Or if he is, he's waiting in the car. You know, there's all these stories that we hear. And, um, and so I entered into our most recent consumer research project thinking we're going to see some of this. We're going to see that boyfriends are the reason, partners are the reason for abortions. And actually what we learned was that 50% of the men surveyed said that they did not either know about the abortion or didn't have a say in the abortion experience. The woman actually um, didn't ask them for permission or said, I'm doing this without you. And I found that to be incredibly just challenging because it wasn't the, it wasn't our narrative. It wasn't what we had been hearing. Couple that with Greg Hasek. He's a licensed clinician who's experienced abortion, really well known in the pro-life movement. He presented on one of our virtual conferences and said, codependency is one of the biggest vulnerabilities leading to an abortion decision. And he unpacked that by saying, if a woman and a man early on in life don't develop healthy attachments to their caregivers, they end up looking for those attachments in relationships. But without a foundation of health, they end up attracting the same toxicity that they saw growing up. And so here you have a man and woman looking to attach to each other, but don't know what healthy attachment is, and then find themselves in a very strenuous situation after they've engaged in sexual relations of this unexpected pregnancy, both of them operating from a narrative of this was selfishly me serving my heart. How the heck are we going to make this decision? And then all the insecurities come out. Her insecurities that her body's going to change. Her insecurities that he's going to leave. Her insecurities is, you know, he's going to act like her father did. His insecurities, I never had a father. You know, my mom wasn't well, didn't treat me well. I was sexually abused. All of those things then start to get tossed around and become very, very, very cloudy. And then they look to their relationship for the answer, right? Instead of inside of themselves, where we would hope that somebody would have identity and purpose and value to make decisions out of self-esteem and self, you know, our self-worth. And so what he says is that it doesn't, it's not about the pregnancy anymore. It's about the relationship. And so then you have women going back to what I said about men, not even knowing you have women who are walking into these clinics, making their own decision because they already have said, but, but this is in their head, not in relationship. They're saying he's going to leave me. So I'm just going to make this decision because I can't live without him. She never even had the conversation with him. And that's what's been revelation, revolutionary to me is that this, this idea that women are walking with so much insecurity that they feel like I have to make this decision because I already know what he's going to say when they don't even give him the benefit of the doubt. And then coupled with, like, like I said, let's unpack this, coupled with what culture's saying is it's her body her choice, men that don't have that self-worth, don't have that identity, are letting culture shape their narrative and say, I don't even have any say in this anyways. And so it's just so, it's so many layers here for us to unpack. And actually what we learned from the research is men are ready. They want healing. They can identify it sooner. 70% said, I want to talk about this. I would like support for this, where we have women at a much lower rate. 
and, uh, and, and there's very few programs for men. Absolutely. And and I'd love to dive in just in a moment here into a phenomenal article that, that you guys published about a year ago, I believe, called Four Action Steps for the Pro-Life Movement. But before we do that, you've touched on this, this multi-generational trauma and experience and and how this gets passed down from generation to generation. And and I, I mean, Peter, you and I have done a, a lot of work with high school students. And I remember a couple of high schools that I've been at and, and speaking to these 16-year-old girls who tell me that they've had two or three abortions already and and volunteers sometimes that I've been with who are newer in in the pro-life conversation kind of arena saying oh my goodness like why would they ever do that and and having the opportunity to sh- for me to share with that volunteer of like how could they have made a different option or how could they have made a different choice what chance did they have when their mm-hmm. parents are likely um presenting a particular worldview because of their experience in the school system and politics and media and all of this sort of thing and I'm curious um, you've talked about this element, and and obviously your group is committed to breaking this cycle, breaking breaking this cycle of continual trauma. And I wonder, for for parents who are trying to do their best raising children who may have had a tough upbringing themselves, like you've mentioned that that there there's so many out there who are coming from a variety of different homes, whether completely shattered and broken or whether just imperfect, like everybody's sort of thing. Where are those parents uh, in the audience um, who may be listening to this? How can they make sure that they're not passing on those kind of worldviews, those experiences, that that fear, that um, what, whatever it is that they might be passing on that's going to not set their child up for success, that might pass on a a fear of pregnancy, of parenthood, of independence, of whatever it may be. What kind of strategies do you talk through with parents to make sure that they are breaking that chain if they're part of it or making sure that they are not starting a a chain of trauma um, if they themselves weren't a part of that through their own family upbringing, I suppose? Yeah, it, what a great question. And I think the answer is, is big um, because it starts with our own healing. We can't be somebody that offers healing or offers support unless we know what it is to receive healing and support. And unless we grow the awareness inside of our own family structure, it's hard to even identify what it is that we're paying forward. Um, and so I think what comes is that we would, as parents, choose the journey of humility, transparency, transparency and personal growth and then be able to pay that forward because kids, you can tell them all day long, but it's what they see. Right. And I was just at a conference where a woman said, I drove my mom to her abortion and I live with that every day. Right. A Hispanic family, her, her mom had had her young. So here she is as an adult driving her 30 something year old mom to the abortion clinic. And so there there's all sorts of structures that we have living among us. And we all have something that or some things that we're contending with. And so if we're honest with ourselves and we have that surrender in our heart to go get the support that we need, our children will see that and then we'll be able to offer that to them. Um, and, And if it has to do with abortion, I would say that getting help for yourself first And then you can offer that because if we're trying to heal somebody out of our own woundedness or help somebody out of our own woundedness, it's kind of like that analogy that if you don't have a full cup, you're not going to be able to pour anything out. And so um, I think it really starts with us and it really starts with our conversations. You know, the 
other side of what you just ask is the family that might not have a lot of these traumas. How do you have the conversations with your children around abortion? And I, I like to use my own experience. You know, I don't start with it's right or wrong. I start with we know people that have been hurt by abortion and it hurts me to see them hurting and I want to be able to be a support to them. So my children get to see my heart through that conversation instead of my judgment or condemnation. And I think we could do a better job as parents to be more of that kind of support to our children as well. Yeah. And speaking of talking about abortion, I, I, I'm going to bring up that article that Cam mentioned for action steps the pro-life movement needs to take, which you published on your website, supportafterabortion.com. The, the first point you made is about that dialogue on abortion, because we've all been there in those conversations when someone brings up abortion and all of a sudden it's like, bam, dead silent. No one knows what to say. Everyone's awkward. Everyone wishes they were back home and they never had this experience in their life. Um, or even like a pastor brings it up and the whole church is like, he said, what? Like, this is a line. We don't cross this line. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, the importance of actually dialoguing on this issue. I wonder if there's sort of, and you've given a lot already, um, but just thinking about, let's say, church leaders, pastors, priests, um, and people with some sort of authority, people um, who have a, a public platform to talk about abortion we need to sort of normalize the conversation in a sense. Abortion in many ways is socially acceptable as you talked about in the article. Um, and yet it's that like the most taboo topic ever. The action's acceptable to talk about it is certainly not. So um, what does that look like for us to normalize the conversation about abortion? And, and I just wanna add this one thing to it as well. Normalize it when there are people in our audiences, there are people in our churches perhaps, there are people in our friend group, there are people around us who, when we, when we uh, start the conversation about abortion, it's going to be like tearing that Band-Aid off. Mm -hmm. um, it's going to be like opening a wound um, that they would prefer not to be open. What, what does that look like? Yeah, well, I think it goes back to the very beginning part of our conversation. Where are we starting? Where is our heart? How has society shaped our narrative? How has our family of origin shaped our narrative? Because if you're a pastor that strongly believes, you know, abortion is murder and it's wrong and everybody in your congregation needs to get behind you. And that's only been that's been your only message. Well, that is a scary message because you are going to get if you preach that from your platform, you are going to get the 50 percent that say, I'm so glad you're the pastor that speaks boldly about this. And then you're going to get the other 50 percent. And we're like, I'm hurt by this. How could you call me this? And so I think we need to, as leaders, understand where we have been messaging ourselves, where we have been standing and I don't want people to hear what I'm not saying. That I'm not saying that stance is wrong. I'm just saying know your audience. And we know that the church isn't outside of the statistic of one in four men and women by their 45th birthday having had an abortion. And we know that 50% are repeat abortions. So you likely have multiple abortions sitting in your congregation. I have found that the support after abortion conversation is a bridge. So it's not saying I'm not saying abortion is right. And it's not saying I'm saying abortion, it's wrong. It's saying that there's people that we love and we care about that have experienced abortion. And because the narrative has been these two sides of the fence, there's no place for them. I have a woman coming to mind right now that said, I left the abortion clinic and I knew I couldn't go back there because they had told me that it was going to be okay. And it was just my choice. And it was, it was just a clump of cells. And then I had all of the murder messages in front of me. So 
I didn't feel like my church was a safe place to go. And so here she has already right out right away. She's already shamed herself. And now she hears those shaming messages. And so she's back, you know, she's just pushed further back into that hole. The pastor that I spoke to that I love his messaging is maybe it's not your job to convince people to support men and women who have had an abortion, but it's your job to accelerate those in your community and those in your congregation that it is their calling. And as a pastor, you are shepherding their hearts. And so by not talking about it, you're not shepherding them. And so it's important that you deliver a message with compassion, with kindness, equipping those in your audience that need to go out into their communities and be the healers and be the, the, the hope restorers. And, uh, and when you don't do that, you become a pastor who silences those in your congregation that needed that extra level of, you know, momentum to get them out into their communities. Absolutely. And, and I know that we've only got about five or so more minutes before you got to dive on to the next um, thing. I feel like there's a million more questions I could ask. One of the second points that was laid down in the article was the value of polling. And you've already shared some of the, the insights that have come from polling. But I'm curious to kind of go the, 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 the other side of the coin from the polling. And, and Peter, you and I have heard countless mothers and fathers um, kind of, they often shout it out as they walk by or drive by, abortion was the best decision of my life, or, or I'm so glad that I chose abortion. And sometimes it can be difficult for somebody in the pro-life movement to know where, how to respond, that you don't quite want to contradict them and be like, no, 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 abortion was actually a terrible decision, and let me tell you why you're wrong about your experience. How do you unpack that kind of perspective when you get that polling, when you get maybe an individual that you speak with who is still resolute in this was the best decision that I could have made? I'm so glad that I made this decision. What goes through your mind and and where does that relationship go, I guess? So I think back to Jonah Berger. He is a marketing professor who presented at our conference. He wrote this amazing book, but he said, look, look at yourself on the football field right? If you're on the 10 yard line, you're not going to try to go all the way to the touch, the end zone on the other side of the field. Look to either side, 10, five to 10 yards on either side of you. That is who your warm market is. That is who you can influence. And so if you have somebody that's all the way on the other end zone, there might be a silent prayer that you say. It might be that you hand them a card, but it's not about an argument. You're not going to change their mind. They're all the way over there. We have to take steps to get closer. So if it is somebody in your circle, you're not going to try to go from five yard line to the other side right away. We're going to take it incrementally and we're going to just continue to show up and continue to listen to them. That is what our human nature does. We look for validation right away, especially if it's a decision that we already knew, which most women and men know what they're doing. They don't feel like they have any other choice and they have to find reason to stand behind their decision. And so if we can know that and we can walk with that and present as somebody who loves and cares no matter what decision, well, we'll get there eventually, but they're not our our warm market of that that change of heart right away. As we start to wrap this up, Lisa, I wonder, and I know there's probably confidentiality things around here, but I wonder if you'd be able to share a few stories or some of your experiences having these sorts of conversations with post-abortive mothers uh, and fathers. So just some stories that stand out um, yeah, from your time doing this. 
Yeah. And I want to specifically focus on chemical abortion or abortion pill, medical abortion. I think those stories are going to be more and greater as we continue through, um, you know, the ruling in, in, um, in June and, and what this might look like. We know that in 2022, we're going to see probably seven out of 10 abortions ending in chemical abortion which means um, a woman could go into a clinic and leave with a paper bag for those that are sidewalk advocates on your call today. Or it could be that a woman online goes through, a man goes through and, um, and together or separately, they order the pills and never even meet anybody in person. Um, and then what happens is a series, you become your own abortionist, essentially. You take this series of pills, it stops your baby's heartbeat beat, and then induces labor. And what we're hearing, and I'll, I'll share a specific story, but what we're hearing is, um, you know, this is just going to be a, like a regular period. This isn't going to be that big of a deal. But women are waking up in the middle of the night in tons of pain, a lot of times by themselves. And then their toilet, their bathtub, their shower becomes the grave site for their baby. But before... Um, it becomes it, before, like they tell you in Planned Parenthood or in an abortion clinic, just flush, just flush, just flush. Most women that we speak to, one specifically held her baby for two hours because she didn't want to have the abortion. She had two previous, she has two living children. She um, felt pressured into this decision because of her economics and, and just her, her, her whole like structure family wise. And she sat there and she wrote a poem um, about looking at her baby in his eye sockets. She said, I didn't realize you had arms yet. She could see the heart, you know, the blood and, and all of that. And she, she just, she had no idea what she was about to encounter. And so there's like this secondary trauma. Not only did she make a decision that she will have to live with for the rest of her life, but now she was basically the, the abortionist putting her baby in the toilet after holding it for two hours and then um, waking up the next day and showering her children in that bathroom, getting ready for work in that bathroom and that memory constantly haunting her. She was suicidal. Um, she reached out to us. She was she joined our support group. And um, thankfully, her story got a little lighter and she felt a little lighter, but it didn't come without a lot of pain. And uh, we had another woman who put her baby in a shoebox and put it in his, put it in their, her closet for several months and reached out to us and said, I just don't have it in me to be able to do anything differently. I, I can't do this. I didn't know it was going to be like this. Um, so that's what we're hearing more and more that I feel like your audience um, should be really present to, um, that this is this is going to get gets worse before it gets better. Um, but then you have women that are in their 30s, 40s, 50s who, um, who've had abortion experiences maybe 10 years ago, five years ago. And my, my dearest friend, she when her first baby, her first living child was born, um, she said, I couldn't hold him. I, in that moment, I became aware of what I had done. And so I told the nurse to take my baby and let my husband hold it. I couldn't do it. So we're hearing that. And then we hear women who tells us, tell us their substance abuse got worse. Men who tell us their substance abuse or their suicidal ideation, their depression, um, helicopter parents, you know, parents that have had abortions, stuffed it way down and now have living children who can't get their children can't leave their side because they're so worried that they won't, you know, have them there. 
You hear stories about men and women who weren't able to have children after their abortion experience, who have had miscarriage upon miscarriage afterwards. Um, it, it, it is this, it is a very scary, silent, shameful place to, to be without healing. Yeah, that's tragic and absolutely heartbreaking. And I think it highlights, I mean, two things for me, for me, number one, for each and every one of us as pro-lifers to know how to have these conversations, to be equipped so that we are ready to have conversations when the opportunity comes up, but also to support organizations like yours, Support After Abortion, that is doing specifically that, is reaching out to, the, to these women and being open when they reach out to you to have those very, very difficult conversations. But really the the step one um, for them, hopefully, to a point of healing. Mm -hmm. Where can we learn more, Lisa, about Support After Abortion and your podcast um, and get involved in some of the work that you are doing? Absolutely. So supportafterabortion.com is the best place to find us. Our social media is pretty active as well. You can find us at Support After Abortion on Facebook and Instagram. And what I would say is if you are a provider or somebody that's really intrigued by this call, on April 21st, 4 p.m. Eastern time, we have a healing network provider meeting. We have them monthly. This month, we're actually talking about men and healing and how to meet men because it's different than meeting women and what that looks like. You can find more information and sign up. It's absolutely free of charge. If you're somebody who's like, mm, I just kind of sometimes want to have this resource. I want to have it in my bathroom at my church or whatever, reach out to us on our website. We can get you resources, signs that you can hold in front of the clinic that are very gentle, that help people. Um, and Or you can leave the, the cards in places that you might feel are, um, are, are going to reach people. And then I would just say, if, if you have been hurt by, by an abortion, if you haven't found healing, if you know somebody that has been hurt by an abortion or is, or is maybe considering abortion, we have resources on our website and we can get you connected. Uh, if you go to abortion, supportafterabortion.com, we have an 800 number. It's confidential. You can reach out to us. You'll be met with somebody who's experienced an abortion and we'll talk you through your next steps and get you connected, maybe locally or virtually to a support group that matches your needs. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Supportafterabortion.com. We'll link that in the description uh, as well in the show notes. Lisa, thank you so much for taking the time and joining us today. You're absolutely welcome. Thank you for having me. That was Lisa Rowe, the CEO of Support After Abortion. Um, man, some very insightful things for me in that episode, some very helpful things for the conversations that I have. Cam, what are some of the I guess, final thoughts that you have as we begin to wrap this up. I I really appreciate the data-driven approach that they have. Obviously, we at CCBR are driven by data as well with regards to the impact of abortion victim photography, the outcomes of our conversations, the dynamics of our conversations, everything like that. It's so cool to see a an educational pastoral group take that approach as well and integrate that into how they're better serving such a massive demographic of society. And I think that we have to lean a lot on American um, statistics and whatnot because it's very, very difficult in Canada to not only get accurate statistics, but to get any kind of info to follow up with people after their abortions. Um, that's impossible to do, I'm pretty sure, here in Canada. And so um, I, I think it's very valuable for us to take the lessons from our, our wonderful colleagues south of the border and, and look for ways to integrate that into our conversation so that we are building relationships with them, learning about them. I, uh, we've spoken before about how 
to invite people to share, help me understand where you're coming from, what were you going through, help me understand where you're at now, things like that that are going to open them up, help them feel heard, and oftentimes allow them to share, sometimes for the first time, about their abortion experience. And so um, really, really appreciated um, Lisa's take on this, the the direction and the data-driven nature of her organization. Um, And I hope that we can continue to build a more effective pro-life movement based off of the data from the real mothers and fathers and the real children who are impacted day after day. That's right. And with that, that's the end of this episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you want to reach out to us in any way, you can do so on our website, uh, prolifeguys.com. And you can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Um, if you are if you have any questions about being active, about having conversations, um, about guests that you want to have on in the future, whatever it might be, please don't hesitate to reach out to us. We love connecting with each and every one of you that does reach out to us. And... Uh, That's it for this week. We hope you tune in again next time.